Well, if you return to Matthew 16, uh, we're actually going to look at the passage in Matthew's Gospel uh, that directly precedes that declaration from Peter. So we're coming up to the end uh, of um, a section of Matthew's Gospel where people are figuring out really exactly who Jesus is. Uh, So if you return there, it's page 983 in the Church Bibles and 1527 if you are in the large print Bible. Matthew 16, and tonight we're going to look at verses 1 uh, down to verse 12. Now about 20 years ago, uh, a psychologist called David Simons uh, performed a famous experiment that some of you may have seen. He produced a video of two teams of three people, Uh, One had white shirts and one had black shirts. And each team had a ball which they bounced and threw to each other, uh, members of their own team. The two teams were easy to see. They weren't far away in the distance. They were clear for those watching them to see who was on which team. And the people watching this video were asked to count how many times... Uh, the white team threw the ball between themselves. And after a few minutes, the clip had ended, and they were asked, well, how many times? And most people answered correctly, 15. 15 times. They were pretty pleased with themselves. They thought they had passed the test. But then Dr. Simons asked them, did you see the gorilla? Was it a joke? What gorilla? Well, Dr. Simons asked them to watch again without counting how many times the ball was being thrown between the team. And sure enough, in that clip, a man, or it might have been a woman, I suppose, dressed in a gorilla suit, waltzes right in the middle of the game. For a few long seconds, he stops, he beats his chest, and then walks off of the screen. He was as large as life. But because the focus was on counting the passes of the ball, the gorilla was completely missed. And if you want to do that experiment, I've kind of ruined it for you now, but you can do it on YouTube. And I did do it this afternoon with those who were at my house uh, for lunch. And sure enough, most people counted 15 and missed the gorilla. The lesson that the experiment was teaching was that what we see is absolutely dependent on what we are aiming at or straining to see, where our focus is. And the question that really we're asked tonight in Matthew's Gospel is a similar question. Are we aiming at something that is stopping us from seeing Jesus clearly, when in the Gospels he is presented to us as larger than life? Are we straining and focusing on so many other things or on something in particular, like the passing of the ball, that we miss Jesus completely? Well, the passage in Matthew's Gospel that we're about to read comes off the back of Jesus being in a Gentile territory where people there had recognized him. They had seen him for who he was. A Canaanite woman had called him the son of David And a group of Gentile, non-Jewish people saw the words and works of Jesus 
and praised the God of Israel. So they had seen where Jesus had come from. They recognized him. But in contrast to that, we come to Matthew 16, where the religious elite are seen again, and the disciples of Jesus, and they miss who he is. They miss him completely because their focus is somewhere else. And what they do is they demonstrate for us two causes of spiritual blindness. Let's read Matthew chapter 16 and verses 1 to 12. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they got across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, Is it because we didn't bring any bread? Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000, and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is God's word. Now as we come to the very first verse of this chapter, you may be forgiven for thinking, I'm sure I've heard this before recently, and you would be right. In Matthew chapter 12 and verses 38 to 39, if you just flip back there, you will read this. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. This is not Jesus, or Matthew rather, reporting the same event. Rather, this is the Pharisees and teachers of the law, or the scribes, and in this case the Sadducees, yet again doing the same thing. They were trying to embarrass him by asking him to do something that they had no expectation that he would do. They didn't believe he could. They didn't think he would. In Matthew 16, this is no sincere inquiry, just like it wasn't before in Matthew 12. This is a test designed to trip Jesus up. But one difference here from Matthew chapter 12 
is that it's the Pharisees and the Sadducees that came to see Jesus. And that's interesting because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were enemies of each other. They had a totally different way of thinking about religion. The Pharisees, on the one hand, were self-righteous. They were all about following the rules. And they were confident in their own righteousness. They were, if you like, the right-wing fundamentalists of their day. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were on the other end of the spectrum. They were very liberal, spiritualizing the scriptures. They denied tradition, and they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The other difference, generally speaking, was that the Pharisees would come from the common people, and the Sadducees were more from the wealthy aristocrats. It was a bit like uh, today, I suppose, when the Labour and the Conservative parties come together for a common cause, which recently they tried to do on Brexit, but it didn't work out. This common cause, this kind of emergency in their eyes, was their hatred of Jesus and the impact he was having on the community around him. And so they came together, these groups that hated each other, to ask him for a sign. But they had no intention at all of believing in Jesus And the fact that this question is repeated from Matthew chapter 12 shows us the first great cause of their spiritual blindness. It was stubbornness. They were blinded by their stubbornness. And that they were blind and stubborn is beyond doubt. Last time they had asked for a sign in Matthew chapter 12, they had ample evidence with the powerful words and works of Jesus. But since chapter 12, there has been even more evidence. We've seen most notably the miraculous feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000. They had all the signs they could possibly want. They had that before. And now when they're asking again, they have even more. But they still ask for a sign from heaven. Now heaven is referred to here as the place where God dwells. And it's also uh, referring to the skies. And somehow they wanted Jesus to perform something that was from the dwelling place of God that they could see in the skies. That would show beyond all doubt that Jesus was from God. But Jesus doesn't rise to this. Rather, in verses 2 and 3, he responds with a rebuke. Now, many of you will be familiar with the phrase, Red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. And it's a familiar phrase to us, but it comes right from this passage in the Bible. It comes from, how these, uh, it comes from these verses, and it speaks of how we can look at the sky and predict with a good degree of accuracy what the weather will be like. Uh, when we had the barbecue on Friday, I was looking at the sky, looking at the clouds, praying that it wouldn't rain. But depending on how dark those clouds are, you can kind of predict whether it's going to rain, can't you? The phrase here, in fact, is scientifically verifiable because I did uh, check it on the Met Office website. And it is on there, and it is true, that if the sky uh, is, is red at night, it's an indication that the next day is going to be nice. And if it's like that in the morning, it's an indication that it's going to be a stormy day. But what Jesus is doing here is not giving us um, meteorology as such, 
But what he is saying is that the Pharisees can do meteorology, but they can't do theology. They can read the signs in the sky about the weather, but they're unable to read the signs of the times. Now, the signs of the times are not talking about seconds and minutes and hours, but rather events, seasons of time, specifically the season of the Messiah coming to earth to work God's salvation, God's salvation plan. They can look at the weather. They can see what it's gonna, what's going to happen in the sky. But they totally missed that Messiah is here. Jesus had shown himself to be the Messiah and they have completely missed it. They did not see him. And the reason is because they were blinded by their own stubbornness. Don Carson writes that the proof that they cannot discern the signs is that they ask for a sign. Their repetition of the question and their lack of any intention to believe in him at all showed their total stubbornness. And it blinded them to seeing who Jesus was. Some of you may have heard of the French uh, Enlightenment thinker Voltaire from the 18th century. He was a big vocal critic of Christianity and of the claims of the Bible. But the real heart behind all of his criticism was not scientific evidence. It was revealed in a statement that he said. This is what it was. Even if a miracle should be wrought in the open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than admit a miracle. Stubborn pride. And this kind of attitude is exactly what was going on with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus was not going to give them a sign from heaven. Rather, he gets to the heart of the issue. Look at verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. The problem was not lack of signs. The fact that they had asked for a sign in the midst of so many signs was a sign, but it was a sign of their wickedness and spiritual adultery. They were wicked because they opposed God by opposing his son, and they were adulterous because they did not worship God, but they worshipped idols. And the idols they worshipped was the the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, and the self-indulgence in the case of the Sadducees. They were all about their money and their wealth, the Sadducees. However, a sign is given to them, the sign of Jonah. And as in chapter 12, we saw that this sign of Jonah was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And as we saw at the holiday club this week, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights. It was a tomb for him. But by a miraculous work of God, he was brought back from this tomb to preach to the people of Nineveh. His resurrection affirmed the message that he preached was from God. And this points forward to Jesus, who was in the grave and after death on the third day, he rose again. And this affirmed and showed that the sacrifice he made for sin was paid for and that we can be right with God. The resurrection is the sign, the sign that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. 
Well, perhaps there are some here this evening who have already decided that Jesus is not who he claims to be. Let me tell you, your stubbornness is blinding you. Rather, let me encourage you to examine again with fresh eyes the evidence of these gospel accounts. Jesus really did rise. The events of the gospel are not fairy stories. They are historical events that really happened. Jesus really is God with us, and he's the only way of salvation. But stubbornness can come in other ways. Perhaps it's not by saying the evidence is not true, but some people can be stubborn by thinking, well, I'm good enough already. I don't need God's forgiveness. I'll be all right. My good deeds outweigh my bad. But the Bible clearly states that we are sinners. We need forgiveness from our holy God. And if we're really honest, we know that we are not perfect. But stubborn pride can also show itself even as Christians. We can have entrenched views about ourselves that mean that we cannot accept correction from other people. We cannot accept the fact that we're not where we should be, that we need to continue to grow, and we cannot admit that we're wrong. Now, sometimes stubbornness can be a good thing. For example, if we stubbornly refuse to budge on our belief in Jesus when we're under attack, but stubbornness, when it's the form of pride, blinds us to the truth of who Jesus is. And the tragic consequences of stubbornly refusing to follow Jesus is shown at the end of verse 4. Jesus then left them and went away. This is more than just a geographical location change. This is an enacted parable where Jesus rejects those who have rejected him. He walked away from them. And that is a warning for us. Jesus won't just hang around forever allowing us to continue to reject him. He may well leave us in our stubborn rejection. Well, stubbornness blinds us. But the disciples, while not rejecting him like the religious leaders, were still blind, just in a different way. The religious leaders were blinded by their stubbornness, but we see that the disciples were blinded by their stomachs. In verse 5, Jesus and the disciples have left the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they go across the lake. And Matthew sets up this section for us in verse 5 by telling us this detail that the disciples forgot to take bread. Now, this was not dangerous or life-threatening. It just meant they're going to be hungry. It's like going to school or to work and forgetting your packed lunch. It's annoying, but you're not going to die. Well, in verse 6, Jesus uses the forgetful forgetting of bread as a teaching opportunity, using bread as an illustration for a spiritual lesson. Look at what it says. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Yeast in the Bible is not always, but often, used as a metaphor for evil. It is evil influence that is hidden, but permeates like yeast does in bread. When you put the yeast in the bread, it permeates it all and it impacts it all as it goes through the dough. 
So the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees is their evil influence that permeates the culture around them. Well, what is this evil that Jesus is warning against? Well, I think there are three evils that Jesus has in mind here regarding Pharisees and Sadducees. The first is the evil of self-righteousness that we see in the Pharisees. And we've seen that throughout Matthew's Gospel. They were overconfident in themselves and in their own goodness. They were proud in thinking that they were right with God. Self-righteousness is an evil that permeates. Linked to this, secondly, is the evil of law-based religion that believes that if we keep commandments externally, then we'll be right with God. And that's taught by every single religion outside of the gospel. Every religion is all about, if I do this, then my salvation is done. Whereas Jesus turns it around. He says, you can't do anything. I've done it all. And all now that you do is a response to what I've already done in saving you from sin. Law-based religion is an evil. And many, many people think that if they do enough, God will be okay with them. It is an evil that permeates. And thirdly, there is the evil of self-indulgence in the Sadducees, whose belief in no resurrection meant that they believed that this life was all there is. And so as Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 15, their attitude was, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's an evil of today, isn't it? If there's no resurrection, if there's no uh, life after death, then in this life is all there is. Then we eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It is an evil that permeates, and it's gone through our society like the yeast in the bread. Well, Jesus tells them to beware of these evils, evils which are all over the place today. People live believing they're good. They follow their own rules, thinking their good deeds will outweigh their bad, and they don't think about the life to come. And Jesus tells them, be on your guard. When the Israelites left Egypt, they had to leave the yeast behind. They left it in Egypt. And Jesus is saying here, don't take part of Egypt with you. Leave it behind. Watch out that the culture around you doesn't influence you so much that it's, it's permeating your life. Leave that stuff behind, he says. Well, in verse 7... The disciples don't get this lesson whatsoever. Their focus is on the physical, on their stomachs. So they say, well, is it because we didn't bring any bread? Their focus was so much on their stomachs that they thought Jesus must be talking about them forgetting bread. They must have been thinking, oh no, we're going to be hungry. The important point to note from verse 7 is that the disciples' focus was totally on their stomach not on their saviour. They were so worried about hunger, what are we going to do if we forgot our packed lunch, that what Jesus was saying was just irrelevant to them. And in verses 8 to 10, Jesus again rebukes them for their little faith. Now remember, when Jesus says little faith, like he did when Peter was walking on the water, or rather when Peter sank, he's not talking about how much faith they have, as in they didn't have enough, 
but about the object of their faith, where it was placed. And the object of our faith is Jesus, and when we have faith in him, it doesn't matter if you have a big amount or a little amount, it's who the faith is in. It's in Jesus. The problem for the disciples, their little faith was the fact that their focus was not on Jesus and on what he was saying, but rather on the fact that they were hungry. They were worried about bread. And when they were with Jesus, in the light of what has just happened, he's fed 5,000 and 4,000, it was a very foolish thing indeed to be worried about, wasn't it? They had little faith because they had poor memories. They didn't remember. They didn't think about the fact this is Jesus. Jesus feeds thousands with just a small amount of bread and a few fish. They had little faith because they had small and poor memories. And before we start thinking, well, how dim those disciples are, we should look in the mirror, right? Our faith in Jesus is going to be very little when our focus is on our stomachs. Think about this, because it's a huge battle for us. This goes further than just food, but can be classified really as materialism generally. Our attention can be solely focused on material, physical, earthly things that we miss Jesus completely. Now, our, our focus on earthly things can be uh, usually in three ways. Either we worry about not having enough, and so we're blinded by worry and not focused on the God who provides. That's a problem for some of us, isn't it? That's what Jesus teaches against in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 when he says not to worry about food and drink and clothes. We don't need to worry about those things because our Heavenly Father provides. And so when our focus is on worrying about those things and not on the Father who provides, we have little faith. Worry. Secondly, we can be focused on the here and now, the earthbound, with covetousness. Wanting more. And so we're blinded to Jesus by focusing on the next thing that will make me happy. If I have this, if I can go on that trip and see that place and do this thing, well, then I'll be happy. If I had this item, my life would just be so much better. That's what Jesus means in Matthew 13 when he talks about the deceitfulness of wealth. It deceives us because when we get that thing, it gives us those happy, fuzzy feelings for such a short time. And then we need something else. And we're focusing on that next thing. And so we're not looking at Jesus. And so we have little faith. So there's worry, there's covetousness. And then thirdly, there is indulgence. That is, we have everything we could ever want. We have so much that we're blinded by all the things that we have. And we don't think about Jesus. We don't focus on him because we don't see that we need him. Because we're so independent, we've got all of our stuff that we need, that we're distracted by looking after the stuff and being busy with the stuff, that we forget him altogether. And so we have little faith. So as dim as the disciples may have been, I think we can safely say, just with those three areas, we can be pretty dim too, can't we? Are we more concerned about physical things, our stomachs, than we are about Jesus and the teaching he wants to give us? 
If we are, then we're missing out on what God has for us, on that relationship with Jesus. The disciples did not understand Jesus' word. They missed out on wonderful truth that he had for them because they were focused on their stomachs and they had little faith. Now we all know what it's like to not understand something when our focus is not right. If, I'm try, if someone's trying to explain something to me while I'm reading a book or watching a TV program, then they can explain as clearly as they want to, but I'm not going to get it because my focus is not on that. And while our focus is not on Jesus, but it's on worry or the next thing or indulgence, then we're going to be distracted and we're going to miss what he has for us. But Jesus is so gracious to his disciples because remembrance is a key to faith. And so Jesus reminds them of how he is the God who provides for their needs. He reminds them in these verses of the miraculous feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000. He reminds them of how many baskets were left over that they themselves were collecting, something which they did. He reorientates their thinking back to himself. And let us pray with a seriousness that God would do that with us. That he would reorientate our thinking, open our eyes, so that we see him for who he really is. And that can be a dangerous prayer in light of what we've just been speaking of, can't it? Because if we're distracted by, say, overindulgence, to pray that might mean God's going to take some things away, which is good for us if it causes us to focus on him. After this morning, much better to just give it away, right? But the point is we need to focus our attention on Jesus and ask him to do what it takes to to get us on him. In verses 11 and 12, he tells them that he was not talking about bread, but about the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And when Jesus opens their eyes, when he reminds them of who he is, when he explains to them again what he means, in verse 12 we read, Then they understood. Then they understood when Jesus opened their eyes. And that's our biggest need, isn't it? For Jesus to open our eyes to the truth of who he is and what he has done for us. And he's done this by providing us with the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding of the word of God. But although Jesus has given us all that we need, the call here is to take our eyes off the physical only and to see the eternal realities that Jesus offers. That was the problem with the Sadducees. The yeast was that this life is all there is. We need to focus on the truth of the resurrection and the life to come. I want to end with a story of a man called Thomas Stewart, who was a young man from Canada, who, as a young man accidentally had a knife thrust into his eye while he was working. And he lost his sight in that eye. He went to the doctor. And the doctor feared he might also lose the sight in the other eye and so felt it best to remove the eye that was damaged. 
But when the operation was completed and Thomas was recovering from the anesthetic, it was discovered that the surgeon had removed the wrong eye and it left him totally blind for life. But he was undaunted in his spirit. Thomas determined to pursue a course of law at McGill University in Canada, even though blind. And for four years, he attended that university in pursuit of his degree. He did graduate. And when he graduated, he graduated number one in his class, which was an amazing achievement. But graduating number two that same year in his class was his brother, William, who for four years had accompanied Thomas to every class, read to him all the necessary books, written for him all the necessary papers, and had been his very eyes. And the testimony of Thomas is that without William, he would never have learnt what he learned. Now we have been blinded by stubbornness, by sin, and by Satan. We are completely, like Thomas, blinded but like him, dependent on another brother, Jesus, to enable us to see and to work for us. And wonderfully, he is our eyes. But like Thomas, we should be striving with God's help to see the wonderful truth that God has for us. So let's strive to focus our attention on Jesus knowing that as we do so, he will give us all the help that we need to see the wonderful truth that he has for us. The disciples understood in verse 12, and right after that understanding, it led them to the section where we read these verses that all of you now know so very well, where Peter declared, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. May God open our eyes to see the same. Well, we're going to respond uh, to these words that we've been hearing in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, actually, uh, by singing the song that we began with this morning. Uh, it's, it's funny how uh, Sundays often work, that uh, the morning and the evening dovetail. I, I never meet with Tim to go through our sermons, uh, but the Lord seems to, on very regular occasions have us speak in ways which dovetail and, 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 and give similar kind of messages. So I don't mind that we're singing the same song, uh, Be Thou My Vision. It's appropriate that we ask God to be that after what we've been hearing about him opening our eyes. So let's stand uh, and respond with the words, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of my heart. <laughs>